0: is actually going to be the best man in my wedding named Jake. He is a representative for the college that I went to, Faith Baptist Bible College, and he's also a power lifter. He can deadlift about 700 pounds and just do a whole bunch of other just really cool things with weights. And I remember I would go with him sometimes to work out. We're roughly about the same height, same size, but he just has more Muscle and I have more. Well, we won't go into that, but I remember thinking he was bench pressing something, I think, and he'd lifted the weight, you know, two, three, four times. And I thought, I can lift that. You know, it didn't sound like that much. And so I got there and he was spotting me, so it was safe. I can remember I got the weight up off of the bar and it came down. I'm like, okay, here we go. And I went to push. And there was something about it where I just couldn't get it quite, and then it started kind of sinking down, and then Jake helped me kind of slowly lift it up. And when he was helping me, I could lift it pretty easily, you know, but got it back onto the bar, and it was one of the few times in my life where I realized I just didn't have the strength to push it forward anymore. And you don't think that. You think, okay, I can probably just, you know, grind through it and get it all the way up, but literally my body just did not have the strength to push the weight forward anymore. When you think about it, all of us face power, some kind of different higher authority in our life. So there's obviously people with different physical abilities than we have who can run faster, jump higher, that are stronger, that are better at a certain sport than all of us. And we've all faced that at different points in our life. You know, There's always someone better. I'm watching a lot of March Madness right now. So all the games that are on from noon to about midnight, you know, I think they're like 16 games on Thursday, 16 games on Friday. There's just always a better basketball team, right? Um, I'm a big Illinois fan. We didn't do so well on Thursday. There's just always a better basketball team. There's always somebody who's a better scorer, who's better at whatever. And it's that way in a lot of athletic arenas. But it happens in other areas too. There's somebody that's smarter, somebody that has more education, That happens as well in authority. If you work a job, there's somebody who's higher up than you. Everyone has a supervisor. I can remember thinking as a kid, when am I going to just be my own boss? When am I not going to have to report or be under anyone? It just never happens. You're always subject to someone, whether it's government, authority, bosses, just whoever. You're always in submission and authority to someone. There's always someone with more power than you. And as we're looking at this passage, this uh, trip that Paul takes to the city of Philippi, it was full of, a peop- of people with a lot of power. It was a very wealthy city, and it had a lot of prominent people there, and we'll meet a few of them here in a moment. But what we're going to see is that these people were not more powerful than the Lord. And God is going to show his power in a couple distinct ways here in Acts chapter 16 as Paul visits the Philippians. And in life, we realize whether it's looking at this passage or in others, you can either submit to God's authority, recognize that he ultimately has more power, more strength, that he's sovereign, he has the authority over your life, or you just won't. And in Psalm 2, it talks about how there's nations who don't submit to the authority of God, and God laughs at them because he holds them in derision that means he he knows that their outcome is going to be futile and so God is in control of all things and for everyone whether you're a person who believes that God has authority in your life or you're a person who thinks God doesn't have any authority in your life there will be a day where you bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord in fact we see the authority of God the authority of Christ even in the great commission do you remember what Jesus says He says, all power, all authority has been given to me. So Christ has all the authority. And then in Acts 1.8, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. So even our power as Christians, our ability to share the gospel with others does not come from ourselves, but it comes from Christ that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. And so the power that we have, the authority that we have, only comes from God. It's Christ who is building his church. Sometimes we, even as Christians, even when we're trying to do what is right, what is good, we can lose track of God's will. We can start thinking all the things we do in ministry or in service are about us and our abilities. And I've said this before, there are pastors all around the country, all around the world, who get too focused on what they can do for God and oftentimes they fall in ministry because of that. Our ministry, our working for the Lord, cannot become dependent on our planning, our gifts, and our power. We are dependent on God. And so I think Paul realizes this as he goes to the city of Philippi. Again, a city that was very powerful, that had a lot of powerful people there. And what I want us to see this morning is this truth. It's that the great power of Christ saves us from Sin we know that God is powerful, you know some people ask the question is there, can God create a rock that is so big that he can't move it? Well, it's just not a great question first of all, because God wouldn't do that. He's smarter than that, okay but God is powerful, but his power has a purpose and God shows his power in the fact that he can save us from sin. I've said this before oftentimes we like to pretend that we're you know, a superhero. If you're a kid, they like to play Batman, Superman, or sometimes you even like to pretend like you're a villain, like the Joker or someone else, but no one likes to be the person who needs to be saved. And yet all of us as humans, as people who are sinful, we need saved from our sin. So what I want us to see is that Christ has the power to do that. Let's look at this in a couple distinct ways in this passage. First of all, we want to see that Christ's power is greater than prominent people. Christ's power is greater than prominent people. Look with me at verse 11 as we pick up with where we left off last week. Verse 11 says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. So Paul, remember, he has started the second missionary journey It started with the intention of going to all the different cities that he had witnessed to or planted churches in during his first missionary journey. So these cities in Galatia. But then after that, he says, I want to go further. He tries to go into Asia. You can see it there on the map. He tries to go into Asia and to all those different cities, Philadelphia, Hierapolis, Laodicea, Ephesus, which you will get to later. Um, all of these are cities or most of these are cities that are mentioned in Revelation chapters two and three as the cities that Christ sends letters to. But what happens? The Holy Spirit says, no, I don't want you to go there yet. I'm going to keep you away from that. He goes over into Mysia. He wants to go into Bithynia, which had, um, Byzantium, which is later known as Constantinople and Nicaea which will be important in church history. But the Holy Spirit again says, no, I don't want you to go there. And it wasn't that those cities wouldn't ever hear the gospel. They would hear the gospel later, but it wasn't God's will now for him to go there. And so what happens? He goes to Troas. He has this vision of a Macedonian man there who I actually believe, I think there's a pretty strong argument you can make at least that this was Luke himself, who Paul meets later, So he sees this man in a vision, he meets Luke, he decides that he's going to go to Philippi, which is in Macedonia, and he's going to start reaching out to those cities. So Philippi, Thessalonica, which we'll look at next week, um, Berea, and then eventually he'll work his way down to Corinth and other cities on the second missionary journey. So that's the route that Paul is on. So we see that he's leaving from Troas and he's making a voyage to Samithrace. it's about halfway on his um, sea voyage to Macedonia. So he stops there just for a moment. I'm not going to say much about that island because scripture just doesn't tell us really what Paul (coughs) did there. He sails after that to Neapolis, which was the port city of Macedonia. It was very closely related to Philippi. So that was like where they did all their sailing from was Neapolis. Then from there, he goes to Philippi. And the name Philippi actually means first or prominent or foremost, okay? If you think that Philippi sounds familiar, it's the city that Paul would later write the book of Philippians to, okay? So there's actually quite a bit said about Philippi in scripture, but the name means that it's first. And when you understand some of the history of Philippi, you start to understand why they thought they were so important. It's the only city that Luke says here in verse 12, is a leading city in the district of Macedonia. Now, Philippi wasn't the capital of Macedonia. Um, It was just a very large and important city. And here's why. If you know anything about history, Roman history, you know that when Caesar was killed on the Ides of March, which just, I guess they celebrated a couple days ago, you know, in March, um, there was a big power vacuum in the Roman Empire. You had Octavian, who later became known as Caesar Augustus, you know him from Luke 2. You had Mark Anthony, and then you had Brutus and Cassius, who were the two people that killed Julius Caesar. There ends up being this power vacuum, and and Mark Anthony and Augustus actually chase Brutus and Cassius over to a region by Philippi, and that's where Brutus and Cassius are finally killed, and Augustus, or Octavian, as he was known then, he sees the city of Philippi and he decides that he wants to um, reward them with something special that had been nice to him while he was over there. So he makes this a Roman colony. Now that was really important back then to be known as a Roman colony because you had the same rights as a Roman city in Italy. So if you think about all the cities that are in the country of Italy, the region of Italy at that time, that's where Rome was, they had special rights. First of all, they were autonomous meaning they had pretty much their own local government there. The citizens there also had special privileges. Again, it was treated like an Italian city. This city became a retirement village for Roman soldiers who had served in the military. There's a lot of powerful people here. There's a lot of wealthy people here. We're even going to meet one of them coming up, Lydia. There's a lot of marketplace trade here going on as well. So we see that this was a powerful city. It was also very close to the heart of Rome. Remember, Augustus had a very close relationship with this city. And then the other emperors liked this city as well. So some people even called it Little Rome. It was like a microcosm of Rome in this Macedonian city. So I say all that just to say that Philippi was a very important, prominent city here in Macedonia. So notice what happens. They go to Philippi and it says he remained in the city some days. This is what happened during that time. In verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So one of the things about Philippi is it did not have a great Jewish population there. It actually had a very large Gentile population. It didn't have very many Jews. In fact, I don't think they had their own synagogue there, so they had to go outside the city gates and meet together for prayer. You might say, why couldn't they just meet inside the city? One of the things about the Roman culture, especially in Philippi, was that they didn't want all these different cult pagan religions in town. So if your religion wasn't big enough to have its own synagogue or own place of meeting, they wouldn't let you worship in town. So they had to worship outside of town by the river, Now, it says he met with a lot of women there. There might have been men there too, but these women seem to be the one at least kind of that are congregating, and he's going to meet a woman there, and I think that's why Luke says that. So he meets with these people. There's specifically women there who had come down to pray, and he identifies one of them in verse 14. He says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of... God. It's a very prominent person. It was very rare, especially in biblical writing, to have a woman's name mentioned, at least during this time. So the fact that Lydia's name is mentioned, there actually is a Julie Lydia, um, and I think she has an important last name as well, but I didn't write it down, who is a pr- prominent person who sold purple. And we actually know that even outside of the Bible. She's in some archaeology and different historical writings during that time. So, this was a real person. We know she's real from the Bible, but there's also just some historical evidence to back this up as well. Now, she's from Thyatira, which was known as being a city that produced purple dye and made purple fabrics. And she's selling purple here, I think, in Philippi as um, someone of an entrepreneur. So, she's a very wealthy woman. She's a very career driven woman as well. Remember, purple back then was the color of royalty. So she had a pretty lucrative business if she was selling purple to people. Now we see here that as Paul is speaking, it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So again, Lydia is listening to Paul and God begins to work in her heart. Given Paul's background, he wouldn't have necessarily been inclined to talk to women. It wasn't that he didn't like women, but if you're a Jewish man... You wouldn't necessarily want to talk to a woman, especially who maybe had a Gentile background like Lydia did. But as Paul, I think, is speaking to these women, in fact, I think he was probably seen as somewhat of a guest speaker to their little gathering, God starts to work in Lydia's heart and opening her to the gospel. So he shares the gospel with Lydia and she believes. Notice what else happens in verse 15. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So he's sharing the gospel with Lydia and her household, and they're saved. And then as a confirmation of their faith, they're baptized by Paul as well. We see again this connection between salvation and baptism that is so close here, even in Acts So after this, she desires to house Paul and his companions, and this would be very important. She, being a wealthy woman, probably had a large home, and maybe she even had an upper room, which was like what the disciples met in pray and where Jesus had the Last Supper. We don't know that for sure, but if she was a wealthy woman, she might have had an upper room where the church in Philippi could meet later. So Paul and his companions stayed there. Um, especially because she was trying to convince him. It says at the end of verse 13, she prevailed upon us. She was trying to convince them to stay. And so we see Paul leads this prominent person in Lydia to the Lord. I don't know about you. I don't think we have any billionaires here necessarily. But as I've read about people who are extremely wealthy, sometimes they can be the most unhappy people in the world. I did some research or I looked at some research studies And it says that many billionaires are unhappy because they feel isolated. They feel paranoid about losing their money. Um, They feel like they need to attain even more money because of their wealth. And so they start even becoming more obsessed with trying to gain more and not being content with where they are. The problem with money and being wealthy, it's not wrong to have money at all, but the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. The problem with trying to attain money is you can always have more of it, right? And it's not just that way with money. If you have power, if you have fame, you can always be trying to achieve more. Some of these professional athletes who are in basketball, football, golf, they're always just trying to win one more championship, one more Title. It doesn't seem like anything can be enough. I've used the illustration of Tom Brady before. He's won seven Super Bowl rings, and yet it was hard for him to retire at 45 because he thought he should have won one or two more championships. Sometimes this quest for power and authority and position can drive a person crazy, and it can really lead them to be unhappy. So what's the key to contentment? Paul is even showing us this here, and he will show us this later, even in Philippians. It's not more money or more power, but it is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Part of what's so hard about accepting Christ in the gospel is you're actually admitting to God that you are weak, that you can't save yourself. Jesus says it's easier for the camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. And why is that? You're admitting to God I have a sin problem, and I can't be saved on my own. And so it's really a wonderful thing that we see God work in Lydia's heart as a prominent wealthy person, and she accepts the gospel. She was a powerful woman. She had great means. She had great wealth and influence, but she couldn't get past the sin problem that she had. And really, none of the Philippians could save themselves. They needed the power of Christ. So you see Christ's power is even greater than this prominent person that we meet. Notice secondly with me that Christ's power is greater than evil spirits. We're going to see a second story that's going to really flow into the third story that we'll look at here in a moment or a second event that happens to Paul and Philippi. Look at verse 16. So they're there, they're staying with Lydia, they're starting to share the gospel with others, and it says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So as he's walking around, he starts to meet this girl, and the impression that you get is that, she has more, that Paul has more than one interaction with her. He starts to see her over and over again. And it says she's possessed with a spirit, or she has a spirit of divination. It's interesting, the word that Luke uses here, it's the word python. Now, when I say python, what do you immediately think of? You think of snakes, right? Or software, if you're Keith. But the rest of us think of snakes, okay? Now, how many of you are afraid of snakes, okay? I do not like snakes. How many of you like snakes? Is there anybody like that in the church? Jeff, okay. Um, besides Jeff, I don't think it's normal to like snakes, okay? All of us are a little bit afraid of snakes. But for Jeff, it's okay, all right? I do not like snakes at all. In fact, I can remember I was weed-eating one day. I picked up one of those gutter guards where the water flows down. As I went to weedy under there, a snake started following my hand backwards, and so I kind of stumbled backwards. Then I realized I had a weed-eater in my hand, and I just kind of, you know, flicked it away. Um, Not a fan of snakes at all. This girl was part of this cult religion that had some Greek background that was a little bit obsessed with snakes, and here's why. There was a Greek myth about Apollo who was searching for the Oracle of Delphi, and he had to kill this giant snake at the entrance of this cave in order to gain access. So when he did this, he ended up becoming, there's a lot of mythology behind this that I've read about, but it's just, you could spend all day researching this stuff. I'll just put it that way. Um, Because he kills a snake, he has access to this cave, which was really the entrance of the underworld, okay? So part of this divination and this fortune-telling, even in Greek mythology, had a connection to what? The underworld, to what they called Hades, what we would call hell. So there's even some of this that has some demonic influence in it. And keep that in mind just for a moment. So these women then thought that they could be connected to this oracle and specifically this um, underworld connection. And they called themselves Pythia. And they were soothsayers. They were fortune tellers. They thought they had this connection to this spiritual divine realm. And they could predict the future and make fortunes and things like that. All right, now, I just want to say, all that stuff really kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies, okay? I'm just not a fan of any of that stuff, for one. Um, I do want to say this, though, before we continue. What I worry about with some of even fortune tellers, soothsayers, people who think they have this connection to those powers today, I don't worry about them being con men or that it's fake. I worry that there is actually a power there. It is not from the Lord, though. It's an evil power. We even see here it's connected to the underworld, okay? So we're going to see even how this plays out with this girl. Notice that she recognizes that Paul has some power. Actually, before we see that, look at the end of verse 16. It says she had the spirit of divination, this python spirit is what they called it, and she brought her owners much gain in fortune-telling. So not only does she think she has a spirit of divination, but she's also being monopolized by her owners. They're using her to make a lot of money. That's going to be a connection we see as well, that this is connected to some financial gain for those who owned her. Then she, it says she followed Paul and us, remember Luke is there too, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, as I read this growing up, I was always really confused about this passage because at face value, it seems like she's calling them servants of God and that they're proclaiming salvation to everyone. You think, well, that's not bad. I think there's two reasons why Paul was not happy about her saying this. Number one, because she actually wasn't calling them servants of God. Some people think that this most high God, um, that word most high, could also be translated as hypostas, so some kind of even Greek power she could have been referring to them as. So some people aren't convinced that they were actually saying that Paul and Barnabas were, or Paul and Silas were Christians, but that they were servants of some kind of other God. Now, I don't know for sure if she was referring to God or some kind of Greek God but at least know that there is a little bit of confusion as to what God she thought that they served, all right? Here's the other reason, and I think that this is why Paul was concerned about it. Even if she did recognize that they served God, and by the way, what does scripture tell us about demons? They know that there is a God. They know that there is a higher power. Satan knows that God exists. He just doesn't acknowledge him as Lord or have a relationship with him. So even if she recognizes that, God, that they serve God, that they're proclaiming salvation, does Paul really want to be connected to this woman? Does Paul really want the gospel to be connected to a woman who's making gain on fortune-telling, who is possessed by an evil spirit? And I would say the answer is no. So even though she's saying the right things, Paul does not want to taint the gospel with this background that this woman has. So she's following them around. She's saying this over and over again. It says she's crying it out. Verse 18, and she kept doing this for many days. Now it says in my Bible, it says Paul, having become very annoyed. So a lot of people think she's just following Paul around. And he's like, okay, I'm tired of listening to this lady, you know, and he casts the demon out. I think a better translation for that word annoyed is vexed or even distraught. I don't think it's just that he got annoyed with it, and so he decided to do something with it. I think he became very concerned about it and the influence that this would have on his ministry. So after he becomes very vexed about it, notice what happens. He, sa- he says he turns to the Spirit and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So as Paul was... Being followed by this woman, he commands a spirit to come out of her after he's greatly vexed. Notice how he says this as well, because I think this is important. He doesn't mumble jitterish or Latin or anything. He doesn't try to, you know, use any kind of rituals or anything like that. He commands the demon to come out in the name of Christ. Did he command the demon to come out in the name of Paul? No. No. Was Paul able to cast out this demon because of some kind of power or authority that he had? No, he did this in the name of Jesus. Now, that being said, I do not do any exorcisms or anything like that as a pastor, all right? I've been asked that before, not in this ministry, but in another place. If I did that, the answer is no. Like I said, I'm very concerned about those kind of things. That is not my purview. But even if for some reason someone today did cast out a demon, it would not be in their own power. It would be in the power of the Lord. That's what we clearly see throughout all of scripture. And there's movies and documentaries and stories that try to say it through these rituals or mumbling things and everything like that. It's only in the power of Christ. So I want us to remember that because Luke records two other exorcisms in Luke 4 and Luke 8. Even when Christ casts out demons, it's in his power, even the power he gets from the Father. So Paul casts this demon, the spirit out of her and it says it came out that very hour. Notice the beginning of verse 19, it says, but when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone and see this connection here, that their hope of gain went away from them at the very same time that this spirit came out of this woman they weren't making money because of her or her powers. They are making money because she was possessed by an evil spirit. And so when Paul cast out the spirit, he also got rid of their chance to make money. There is a connection with some of these things, with this fortune telling and soothsaying, to money as well and people trying to get rich from it. But It is a power that you definitely do not want to mess with. This illustrates just the gross abuse And injustice, even towards this woman, that these owners had over her—that all they viewed her as was a tool, and able to make money. Now, I don't know about you. I've already said this stuff kind of, you know, freaks me out a little bit. I also just not a horror movie fan. I know some people might be fans of horror movies. All right, that is just not my genre. Um, You can ask Alicia. I jump easily to things that scare me. Okay. And even as we think about just how this applies today, I think one of the things that can... One of the things that I hear a lot of Christians try to say even about the demonic realm is, oh, none of that stuff exists, you know? I've even heard pastors, Christians say, demons aren't real, Satan is not real. That's not true, okay? In Scripture, we clearly see that Satan is a real person. He's not more powerful than God. He's not more powerful than Jesus, but he is real. He is active, right? And that there is demonic activity. Now, how far, to what extent do these things go to? Um, there is a connection between even drug use and some of that stuff. So are some of these people who claim to have these experiences just hallucinating for me? And high? I'm not sure, okay? And I never want to find out either, okay? Like I said, I don't want to get near this stuff. The point of why I'm saying this isn't so that we can have a long discussion about horror movies and demons, but it is this, that all of this power and all of this dark spiritual realm is scary. It is not stuff you want to get involved in, but it is not more powerful than Jesus. Amen. All of this stuff that Paul deals with here, we see that it is clearly not as powerful as Christ. Not even just in the spiritual realm with demons, but there are also just things in the world that can be scary. There are other powers, there are other things that we can be fearful of, even as Christians. But it's important for us to remember that they are not more powerful than the Lord. Paul sees this threat, he sees this woman who's possessed by a powerful spirit. So how does he cast this demon out? He does it in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ, I'm reminded of Romans 8, which talks about whether there's anything in heaven or on earth, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There's a higher power, and that is Jesus. So we talk about not only this dark, demonic realm, but even just things that are powerful, things that can be fearful for us, we can trust in Christ and his power, knowing that he has power over the living and the dead. It's funny, we'll get here in a couple chapters, but I even think about these men who were trying to cast out demons in Acts 19, and they thought they had this power. And when they tried to do that, the demons say, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, we have no idea who you guys are. And then they scare them, and we'll get to that later in Acts 19. It's an important reminder in this regard as well, that even as Christians, yes, we have power from Christ, but it is power that comes from Jesus. There's nothing about ourselves that is important. None of this power comes from us. Do you remember the disciples? They, uh, Peter and James and John, they go and they see Christ transfigured and in all of his glory from heaven. And when they see that, after when they're coming down from the mountain, they say, hey, Jesus, can we cast down fire from heaven? And Jesus is like, that's not what you should be thinking of. You should be understanding that it's not great for you to be able to do that, but that your names are written in the book of life. So even as we consider this, not only should we remember that Christ is greater than anything we can be fearful of, but also remember that any power that we have, any authority that we have, only comes from Christ. Let's look lastly at this third point. And it's that Christ's power is greater than evil governments. Christ's power is greater than evil governments. Look with me at verse 19. So connected to this narrative that we just saw, it says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So these owners of this girl are not happy that their ability to have money is gone. And by the way, this kind of shows me that they knew there was some kind of evil spirit that possessed her as well. Why did they know that? Because they knew that they weren't going to make any money anymore. So right when this happens, they see Paul and Silas, they drag them into the marketplace, and they start putting them on trial. It says they drag them before the rulers. Verse 20, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So they start bringing them to the marketplace, and they start accusing them of, first of all, being Jews, which, yes, they had a Jewish background, but they weren't Jews necessarily. They were Christians, right? What they accuse them of is trying to advocate for their own laws and customs and turning the Greeks away from their own way of doing things. And this is why this was important, especially as a Roman citizen. You were not allowed to be religiously intolerant. And so what they were accusing Paul and Silas of was not allowing the Greeks to practice like they had. Now, what were the owners really upset about? They were upset that their ability to make money had gone away because this demon had been cast out. But when they start accusing Paul and Silas of this crime, everybody starts to get really riled up. Look at what happens. Verse 22, "The the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders for them to be beaten with rods. Now notice this only happens to Paul and Silas. I don't know what happened to Luke and Timothy during this time. I would imagine because there were Gentiles, maybe they weren't charged with this like Paul and Silas were. That's just my guess. For whatever reason, they get out of all this. Um, They're beaten with rods. They're beaten with rods. I think this was also just to protect them from being killed. By the mob, so this beating that they had was pretty severe and intense. It says in verse twenty-three, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now we'll see this at the end of our passage, but what is actually happening to Paul and Silas is illegal. And why is that? Because Paul was a Roman citizen and Silas was a Roman citizen as well. Yet. We don't see Paul say anything here. We don't see him say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You guys shouldn't beat me or throw me in jail. And why is that? I've got a theory about that, but we'll talk about it once we get there near the end of this passage. So they're beaten up. They're thrown into prison. Notice it's this inner prison. This is where they kept the worst offenders, the people that were most worried about escaping, and the people who were of a low economic class. I don't know if this news had reached Philippi, but in Jerusalem, there were a couple different times where Christians were broken out of jail by angels. So if this had reached Philippi, they were definitely wanting to keep these guys in the most secure part of the prison. So this jailer then we meet, this Philippian jailer, he has orders to keep them under guard. And by the way, if they escaped somehow, his life would be On the line. He would be tortured and humiliated and killed if they escaped. So he was going to make sure they were well kept. He puts them in these stocks, which were things that you would be placed into. It was they were very uncomfortable. They were with metal rods back then. And so the idea was that you couldn't really adjust without there being extreme physical pain. So we even see while they're in prison, they have pain as well. We find out later in the story that they actually didn't have any of their wounds washed, so they're being beaten with rods. They have these large gashes in their back, and they're not even cleansed from their wounds. And so this was not a great situation that Paul and Silas were in. And yet, while all of this is happening to them, what do we see in verse 25? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I don't know about you, that's not the reaction that I would expect from Paul and Silas. They're in prison. There's a chance they could have been killed. They've been beaten. They've been falsely accused by these people. And yet we see them singing and rejoicing. Now, the question becomes, what songs do you think they were singing? I've heard some people ask this. I think they were probably singing psalms. You also read Philippians 2, 5 through 11, or Colossians 1, 15 through 18. You'll see that those are some descriptions of Christ. Sometimes they're called Christ hymns. So they could have been singing that as well. But the bigger question, I think, is why were they able to sing? I don't know about you, but if you were beaten up, put into prison, falsely accused, and you had all these gashes in your back that hadn't been cleansed, I don't think you or I would be singing. In this situation. So, why were they able to sing? And don't miss this the circumstances that Paul and Silas were in, all the evil that was done to them, all the opposition that they faced to the gospel, was nothing in comparison to the power of Christ. Christ never promises us that we're going to have an easy life, that we're going to have easy circumstances. But in John 16, he says, In the world you'll have much trouble and tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. We're going to face difficult circumstances in life, and sometimes this can overwhelm us. Sometimes this can make us depressed. This can make us worried, anxious. But Jesus is greater than the world. And so Paul and Silas could sing and rejoice and be happy during the circumstance because they know that the ultimate authority was not in the government. The ultimate authority was not in that jail cell or in the people who put them there, but it was in God. I love the fact that they were singing here, especially singing psalms and other hymns. Carl Truman says this about singing the psalms. He says, in the psalms, God has given the church authority. The language which allows it to express the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. As you read the Psalms, you can see different Christians, different people throughout history who have been sad, who have been depressed, but who have found their hope in God. So, as Paul and Silas are singing, they're praising God even despite their circumstance. And that can be an encouragement, I think even to us. Now as they're singing, notice in verse 26 what happens. It says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. I don't know what song they were singing to make an earthquake happen, but we're not going to sing it here at our church because we don't have the money to rebuild the church after an earthquake would tear it down. But this prison is shaken, and when it happens, when this earthquake takes place, the doors are opened And all their chains fall off. So this was a very convenient earthquake that all the doors would open and all the chains would fall off of Paul and Silas. Now, I do want to mention this. Earthquakes were not uncommon in Philippi. In that region, there were a lot of earthquakes, especially during that time, that would happen. What is uncommon is that there's an earthquake. Everything else is fine, but all the doors open and all the chains fall off of all the prisoners. And that shows us that this is the power of God. And so Paul and Silas are free to go. They could walk out right at that moment. And if it were me, and if it were you, we would probably be pretty tempted just to run. Now, I think they probably could catch me if I ran away. So maybe I would wait until they let me out. But Paul and Silas have their freedom at this moment. And the jailer knows this. Look at verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So even the jailer says, hey, all these prisoners are able to escape. I might as well just kill myself. And why would he kill himself? Because if the Romans found out that the prisoners had escaped, they would humiliate him, they would torture him, and they would kill him. And so he said, I better just get it over with before all of this happens. So he is on the brink of killing himself. And in verse 28, It says, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. I don't know how many prisoners were in this inner cell. It could have just been Paul and Silas. I get the impression there's more, but for whatever reason, they all stayed. They were all there. And that's even a miracle in and of itself that this jailer didn't have to worry about the other prisoners leaving. Now, if you're the jailer, you just thought your life was over. You just had this very near-death experience added on top of the fact that there was an earthquake that happened in your jail cell. So he's obviously very shaken up. And notice this question that he asks. Well, look at verse 29. It says, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, this question seems a little bit random, doesn't it? Why would he immediately ask him, being a Gentile, what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian? How would he even know that he needs to be saved? And there's a couple different options. Paul could have been sharing the gospel with him. And if you know Paul, you could say he probably was sharing the gospel with this person. This jailer just had a near-death experience. And whenever you have a near-death experience like what he had, you probably start thinking about your life and what's going to happen to you after you die. So you're met with this question, but how did he know that Paul and Silas knew what it meant to be saved? How did he know that they were the people to ask? And I would say the answer is this: It was in the songs that they sang. He heard them singing and rejoicing, and he knew that these guys had it figured out. that these guys knew what the key was to eternal life that they knew what happened after they died. If for no other reason than this, Paul and Silas could have been killed. They could have died in this moment. And yet they were happy. They were rejoicing. They were praising the Lord. I think this is a great reason why we sing songs that preach the gospel. We sing songs that tell us the story of the gospel because they encourage our souls And they even share the gospel with others in music. So such a cool picture of what happens to this Philippian jailer. He's met with this question of what do I need to do to be saved? So look at what Paul says in verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I don't think he's saying that, okay, if you get saved, your household will be saved after that. But hey, for you, your household For anyone else who wants to be saved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so many times we can take the gospel and we can say, you need to be saved and this, you'd better understand this, you'd better do this. That's not what Paul says. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is very simple in the way that Paul presents it. This jailer, He's met with the end of his life. He's come to the end of himself. And all he wants to know is, how can I be saved from eternal punishment? How can I have a relationship with Jesus? How can I have this peace that surpasses all understanding? And the answer is simple. You believe in Jesus. It wasn't Paul and Silas. It wasn't that they were these great Christians or that they had this great power in themselves. But they said, we believe in Christ. And Christ has the power to save you from your sins. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. So he takes them back to his house. He cleans up their wounds. And while doing this, Paul shares the gospel with them, the word of the Lord I think he gives him a more full explanation of the gospel, who Christ was, what he did, how he died, how he rose again. And this man is saved and his entire household is saved. Such a miraculous conversion that takes place with this Philippian jailer. Verse 34, and he brought them up into his house and set food before them and rejoiced along with them, with his entire household that he had believed in God. So notice what happens. Paul and Silas were rejoicing. They share the gospel with this person. They start praising God too. This is wonderful how we see the gospel even being shared and how he can have the same confidence and joy in the Lord. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. Now, you might ask, why did they decide to let Paul and Silas go the next day? Maybe they'd serve their time. Maybe they realized that they were citizens and thought we would just better get these guys out of here. Or maybe they saw the earthquake and they said, we better get these guys out of the prison because these weird things are starting to happen. For whatever reason, they wanted to let them go, but they wanted it to be done in secret. They didn't want it to be some kind of public thing, and they didn't want to talk to Paul and Silas themselves. So look at verse 36. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. So they weren't even going to go to Paul and Silas in person. They just sent word to the jailer. Verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. Do not throw us out secretly, Let them come themselves and take us out. So Paul says, look, you guys have beaten us. You've put us in prison. We're uncondemned and we're Roman citizens. And it was illegal to beat and to execute or to put in prison anyone who is a Roman citizen. So Paul uses his citizenship here. You might ask, why did he do this? Why didn't he do this before he was beaten, before he was thrown in jail? I would say the answer is this, this didn't do a lot to help Paul because Paul is going to be freed from prison anyways, but the church in Philippi probably would have faced more persecution if these, if these magistrates just would have let them go without Paul making a big deal of this. And I think what Paul is doing is he's securing some of the outcome for the Philippian church in showing the magistrates that they can't mess with the Christians who are there. He calls them out for not treating them rightly when they throwed him into prison. And so now he's helping the Philippian Christians who are there not face further persecution. So we see when this happens, the magistrates go and they let them out. It says in verse 39, so they came and apologized to them. And when they took them out, they asked them to leave the city. Verse 40, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So they apologize to Paul and Silas. They let them go. Paul goes and encourages Lydia, who is there. And you start to see a church starting to form around these Christians who are there. You've got Lydia. You've got now this Philippian jailer. Anyone else who could have been saved. Some people think maybe the slave girl could have become a Christian that's not really in the text. We just see that the demon is cast out of her. We start seeing this Philippian church form and Paul will later write a letter to the Philippians. But as we think about this event that happens to Paul and Silas, they survive, they live on to preach another day, and they use their opportunities in suffering to share the gospel with others. This jailer is so taken back by their joy that they have in Christ and their response to the circumstances that they were in, that he wants to be saved. And I think about this for us, and there's so many times as Christians when we can become discouraged by the world, by our circumstances around us, and unfortunately, sometimes Christians can become some of the more grumpy and discouraged people that we know. I'll just say this, that shouldn't be the case. There shouldn't be any Christians who know God, trust in Jesus, and know the promises of scripture that are always distraught or grumpy all the time, or who people just look at and say they don't have any joy. But rather we should be like Paul and Silas, who in these difficult circumstances, when they're in prison, when they've been beaten, people wonder, why are they so happy? Why are they just singing around midnight? Now, I'm not saying go home and sing at midnight. You know, your spouse or your people who are at home with you might be a little bit upset. Mac would probably look at me funny if I was singing at midnight tonight. But I think the point is this, is that we should be joyful as believers. We should have people question, why do you have this hope that is in you? Why do you have this joy? We can show them that it's from the gospel. This whole chapter, I think, shows us that we are dependent on Christ and his power. When Paul talks about how he can be content in any circumstance in Philippians, what does he say? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't mean you can do whatever you want or become a basketball star, but it means you can be happy in difficult circumstances because of the power that comes through Christ So, as we think about Christ's power, one of the hardest things you can do in life is acknowledge that you're dependent on someone, that you need someone's help, that you're not as powerful as you once thought you were. I had an event this week that reminded me of that. I had to go renew my driver's license, and I was a week or so past due. So, because of that, I had to take the knowledge portion of my license over again, okay? Now, I walked in, and they said, if you fail the knowledge portion of the driving test, you have to wait a business day before you can take it again. And I thought, well, I already have my license. How on earth could I possibly fail the knowledge portion of the driving test? Well, I found out it's pretty easy, actually, to fail that part of the test. You had to get 14 of 16 signs right. I got 13 of 16 signs right. On the 16th question, I got it wrong, all of a sudden the screen popped up and said test is over you failed come back tomorrow and I looked around and I said so no- nothing else I can do and they said nope come back tomorrow and so I was reminded even in that moment that sometimes I'm not quite as smart as I think I am I walked in I'm like this test is going to be easy I might get all the questions right it turns out that was not the case that I needed to go home you can ask Alicia I was very upset about it I needed to study. I had to go online and look up questions that were made for 16-year-olds who were taking the driving test and study multiple-choice questions on what sign is this. And praise the Lord, the next morning I went, I took the driving test, I passed. Still missed a couple, but I passed, okay? And am now a licensed driver in the state of Indiana. I say that to say this. I'm not going to complain about the Indiana driving system anymore, but oftentimes... In the moments where we are the most confident in ourselves, the most full of ourselves, the most sure of our own abilities, it's when God decides to put something in our lives to remind us how weak we are, that we're dependent on him, that maybe we're not as great as we thought we are. And so how can we acknowledge our dependence on Jesus? What happens when we acknowledge our dependence on Christ let me close with these three thoughts. When you acknowledge your dependence on Jesus, first of all, you trust in his strength. Paul didn't say, I'm going to cast out this demon in my name, and my power, and my ability. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command the spirit to be gone. Now, don't go off from here and try to cast out demons. That's not the point of this, okay? But trust in Christ's power. In life, so you try to do things to serve the Lord, as you share the gospel with others, there's going to be times when you think, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not the right person. And that's okay. You can trust in Jesus because Jesus is more powerful than whatever circumstance you're facing. When we acknowledge our dependence on Jesus, secondly, we rest in his promises. Have you ever had a day that just everything seems to kind of go wrong? Nothing seems to go like you want it to, When things go bad, when you have difficult circumstances, think about Paul and Silas. They're beaten very severely, put in prison on these stocks where they can't even really sleep. It's about as bad a day as you can imagine. Yet, why could they sing? Why could they rejoice? Because they rested in the promises of Christ. Friends, God's made us promises too. We have them in his word. And we can trust in those promises, even when life gets difficult. But we need to acknowledge our dependence on him. Lastly, we can share his gospel. People who try to share the gospel to preach the name of Christ in their own power are probably going to end up falling short. In fact, not probably. They will end up falling short. The best way you can share the gospel with someone is is not in your own power, in your own gifts, by trying to show how great you are, but it's by telling someone, hey, I'm a sinner too, and I'm not perfect, but this is how Christ worked in my life. And this is how Christ can shape can save you as well. These things aren't easy. They happen when we acknowledge our dependence on Jesus. And remember that He is. Lord, and that He's more powerful than we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love with which you've loved us. We thank you for your power, Lord, for that power that's ultimately shown in salvation. God, you're saving people from their sins. Do you help us to share that love with others this morning? Do you help us to remind people of who we serve, to show them the love of Christ. Father, I pray that even as we go from this place today that we'd be encouraged and strengthened to share your gospel with others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.